0: This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today we are talking about the movie-slash-book, Gerald's Game. This is the second of my spooky episodes for the month of October, and I'm following it up with another Mike Flanagan piece of work. Uh, He actually directed the movie version of Gerald's Game. The original story is by Stephen King, which was published in 1992, and the film version came out on, I think, Netflix only in 2017. And if you are familiar with Mike Flanagan's work, as I've covered quite a bit of it on this show, you'll realize that several of the actors from the uh, movie Gerald's Game reappear in other of Flanagan's work, including the main character who is played by Carla Gugino, who played the mom in The Haunting of Hill House. So it's kind of like a One of the first times we get to see all these actors working together before the, like, episodic shows that they're on with each other. Now, I am going to give a content warning up here at the top. The content of Gerald's game has a lot to do with childhood sexual abuse. And as the title indicates, I'm going to be talking a lot about trauma responses and recovered memories. So if those are topics that are sensitive for you or, you know, could potentially could be very activating. I just want you to know that before jumping into the episode. So I'm just going to lay down a quick little summary of what happens in Gerald's game because I don't know if many people have seen or read it. It, I think it's a little less well-known story of Stephen King's. Uh, At least I hadn't even heard of the book until I saw the movie and then I ended up reading the book after that. The versions are a little bit different uh, between the book and the movie. The book is quite a bit more graphic just because it can be. It's hard to make a film as graphic as the book is. And the book has quite a few more, I'm going to say quote unquote characters because they're hallucinations, but it has more characters interacting with our main character. So the premise of both the film and the book is that this character named Jessie is a middle-aged woman. She's married to her husband, Gerald. That's what the movie is named after. Uh, And they are like uh, at this lake house having kind of like a getaway. And he wants to engage in like essentially like sexual play by handcuffing her to the bed. And in both the book and the movie, it's quite clear that she's not interested. This is not really something she's into, but she's doing it to essentially please her husband. In both stories, something happens that causes her husband to have a heart attack, and he dies while she's still handcuffed to the bed. And the majority of the story takes place with her handcuffed, dehydrated, hallucinating, and in the course of her hallucinations, she remembers that she was sexually abused as a child by her father. This was a memory that she had repressed for many, many years. And in the book version... We realize that this sort of repressed memory has really impacted Jessie's life. She's lost friends. She's walked away from therapy before because she's unable to acknowledge or go near this memory, which I think makes it or hints at it being more of a conscious repression that she's actively suppressing this memory more so than it being like a a recovered memory. But I will be getting into that more later. As she is kind of wrestling with these hallucinations, she also sees a figure that keeps standing in the corner of the room that's holding like a bag of bones or trinkets, and she thinks that is part of her hallucination. But the reality is, is that that is a real person and it is a serial killer, I guess depending on the version, the book versus the movie, he's either like a serial killer that only kills men or he's just a serial killer in general. But he's real and he's just watching her essentially be chained to the bed. She eventually escapes both versions. It's quite gruesome. I think in the movie she like cuts open her skin and peels her hand out. It's really, really gross. Escapes and then both the movie and the book conclude with kind of like a after the fact follow up where in both versions Jesse is able to acknowledge that she was abused by her father, that she was in a similar abusive pattern with her now dead husband and in both versions, she goes to the trial of the serial killer and is able to confront him, which kind of symbolizes her confronting the men that have put her in danger for most of her life. I think whether you read it or watch it, it's it's quite a powerful story. And I always do appreciate getting to enjoy a Stephen King piece of work that doesn't end in just abject misery <laughs> and, and pain. And obviously, as like a mental health professional... I find this story in general to be very interesting. I think the two main things that stick out is that Jesse is an example of certain types of trauma responses, and she represents this idea of like recovered or repressed memories. So I'm going to first start with just talking about trauma responses, and then I'm going to move into recovered memories in the later part of the episode, because there's quite a bit of controversy around that topic within the field. And I really want to be able to dig into it. So if you've been on the internet (laughs) anytime in the last few years, you've probably heard the phrase trauma response get thrown around a lot toward a lot of things. But I want to give you some like actual examples of trauma responses so that it's a a bit of a more clear concept. And with Jesse, we in in the story, we get to see trauma responses from an adult and from a child as she remembers her experiences as a child. Now I'm going to be using this resource from the VA website. The VA has a lot of fantastic resources around PTSD and trauma as the population they mainly treat veterans is a high trauma population. So I'll be linking this in the sources if you really want to read it for yourself or have it for later. Some common reactions to trauma can include physical reactions, and emotional reactions. Some things may be after experiencing a trauma, the person loses hope for their future, feels distant or disconnected from people around them, have difficulty concentrating or making decisions, feeling jumpy or getting easily started at sudden noises, feeling on guard all the time, having dreams or memories that upset the person, having difficulty functioning in day-to-day life, and then avoiding people, places, or things related to the traumatic event. Now, in Jessie, I think we see a few of these in her kind of adult life she's built for herself. We don't know a lot of the details around her life because we really only see her in this like slice of this event she's going through. And she's going through a trauma in the middle of the story, but then reflecting back on a past trauma. And so I think the biggest one is that obviously she's having, well, she's having hallucinations, but I would, I would kind of wrap that up into the dreams or memories that upset her. In both versions, she's confronted by a version of herself, which either serves to confront her or cover over her history. In either versions, whether the hallucinations are trying to help her or are being mean to her, they, they bring about distress and bring up something that is clearly upsetting Jesse. And you can imagine that if someone has been pushing away a memory for 30 years, and then it comes back to them when they're trapped in a very vulnerable position, that's going to make them really upset. It's going to cause a lot of overt distress, more so than if she was in a place where she could be safe. And I think that that is, you know, although it's like a, a fiction and a horror story, I think there is a parallel there to real life that when we are going to be doing trauma work that's going to br- be bringing up these memories that the person has been avoiding for most likely a substantial amount of time, we have to make sure that in the moment that they are re- returning to the memory, they know that they are safe. And often this looks like before you even start trauma work with your you know, therapist or your provider, that they are teaching you skills to learn emotional regulation or learn how to do some grounding so that you can pull yourself back into the present moment rather than feeling trapped in the memory. It's often one of the reasons that people with traumatic memories repress or avoid them so much is that it can be hard for the brain to distinguish between are we in the past in that traumatic event again or are we in the present. And so making sure that the person knows how to regulate that before going forward with the memory is really vital to trauma work. If you're into like pop psychology or pop psychology books, you've probably heard of the book the body holds the score, uh, or even my grandmother's hands. Both of those books are examples of work that focuses on trauma in the body and how the body has to be included in trauma work to be able to truly process and and regulate the person who experienced the trauma. Now, in Gerald's game, Jessie doesn't have that safety. She's still handcuffed to a bed. She's starving. She's dehydrated. She doesn't think that anyone is going to know that she's out there because they they went like off-season. It's not the summertime, so no one's out by the lake. And then she eventually realizes that there's also a serial killer trapped in the room with her. So it's not a safe environment, and she's kind of cracking into these memories she's worked so hard to not think about. It's just a recipe for disaster. So I think it's, it's no wonder that she's hallucinating as a way to kind of buffer these thoughts that she's having. Now, again, in the film, there's less hallucinations. She only sees A version of herself and her husband. In the book, she sees several versions of herself, including like her childhood self, a version of herself as like a puritanical woman, her college roommate, and then her old therapist. So she's she's seeing more people in the um in the book version tied up in to her having these like memories or these hallucinations come back to haunt her. Is we realize that Jesse has avoided the circumstances around her abuse for much of her life she's avoided telling her friend, she's avoided telling her therapist. We don't know for sure, but I would imagine she probably avoided her family a lot more. And there is, it is alluded that she tried to tell her mother and her mother didn't do anything about it. So she may have avoided her her mother growing up. And quite frankly, she did such a good job of avoiding all the people, places, and things related to the trauma that she does not have a conscious memory of it happening to her. Or she she may have the memory, but she's been doing very good at pushing it away. I use that language of she became very good at doing it because that's something we might use with clients to say, you know, you've been living your way like this for a very long time and you've become very good at coping with your trauma in one way and it's kept you safe. You're still alive. You're still here. The thing that we want to change is the way in which we cope with that trauma. Because the way that you're doing it, although it has been effective for you in the long term, is also causing you a lot of distress and is making your life more difficult. It's become a barrier to you living a life that you want to live. So we want to change the way in which you cope with the trauma by teaching you different skills that you didn't have before. This is a very like non-shaming way to talk about these reactions to trauma and to normalize them in the sense of this is how people do the best that they can do with what they have to get through their day-to-day lives with this kind of horrible thing hanging over them. Many of the skills and things we do in therapy are not intuitive to people. Otherwise, I wouldn't need to do this job, right? I could just be a podcaster. I wouldn't have to also be a mental health professional if these things to do were intuitive. So it normalizes for people that trauma reactions are very common and are a way of survival and there can be different ways to move forward once you have those tools in your tool belt. And I think that's a message I would have for Jessie of that she was really doing the best she could with what she had, especially as a child that asked for help and was denied it by her mother. She's been doing the best she can with the resources that she has. Unfortunately, she's now stuck in a situation where those resources aren't working anymore and it's time to kind of confront the past. And ultimately, I think that is the, the message of the ending, is that Jessie realizes that it is better for her, her well-being to be able to acknowledge the trauma and find community in her trauma. In the book version, I believe she reconnects with her roommate, who had attempted to like talk to her about her abuse, so she like rebuilds a relationship by it. And in the movie version, she starts a like, non-profit organization for girls who have been sexually abused. So she, like, essentially builds a community for people who are just like her. And this would be what we might call post-traumatic growth, which is where she went through something horrible as a child and then also, again, as an adult where she's, like, chained to this bed. She took that experience and was able to better herself better her future in a way that maybe would not have been possible before the trauma. Now, I'm not going to get too much into post-traumatic growth because it's a it's a whole <laughs> own theory, but I do just want to be clear that it doesn't mean that you have to go through trauma to do good things and it doesn't mean that trauma is worth it because it it may come with a silver lining. It's just a way to kind of talk about the idea that a person's life is not effectively over if they go through a trauma, that there is a like future beyond that flashbulb event. And I think the other thing that Jesse represents off this list is the feeling detached from other people. She clearly did end relationships or detach herself from relationships to avoid talking about this thing. But I also think that the way in which she kind of just went along with her husband with whatever he wanted and was unable to kind of say what she wanted demonstrates this detachment in that it's just easier to go along to get along than it is to form a meaningful connection or realize that there is no good connection there. Because ultimately, I think whatever version you encounter, her husband is a piece of work and (laughs) was not a good partner to her. Um, But because she's like detached and unconnected from the people around her, she's not able to see that this is not a thriving partnership. And often people who have gone through a trauma, particularly a sexual trauma, never, well, I'm not going to say never, but uh, don't want to engage in like sexual intimacy. It can be very triggering to the body, to the mind. And so it's easier to be that detached because it's protective. It protects you from having the greater trauma response. So all in all, Jessie is clearly going through a lot and I think she really does represent how someone in this experience can react. I think also serves to demonstrate that trauma upon trauma can start to get connected. That her going through this modern day or present day trauma brings up these memories of this past trauma as it starts to get all connected. It's activating the same like fight or flight reactions that the the first one did. So they they the memories kind of trigger each other. So speaking of memories let's also get into recovered memories. I think that it is a very controversial topic in the field of psychology. It long has been a controversial topic, and so I'm going to try to do my best to cover the different sides of it and leave it up to my audience to decide kind of where you might fall on the different sides of the debate. Now, I do want to mention that the reason I'm bringing this up is because of this article I was reading by Zizza which was published in 2014 and so it was before the movie version came out it's just about the book version but they raised some really interesting points in this article which I found on Google Scholar so you you should be able to read the whole thing for yourself if you want but they talked about how Stephen King got a lot of critique in the 90s when he first published this book and a lot of critics did not like the book Gerald's Game because of the fact that it addressed the topic of child abuse. And this author brings up that in the the context of the 1990s, this conversation about memory repression and childhood abuse, particularly child sexual abuse, was a, a hot-button topic, both like politically and culturally. We were coming in off the backs of the Satanic Panic, which was this like crazy moment in American history where... People became convinced that their children were being abused by underground satanic cults. Some very dubious therapists came forward to say that they could do memory recovery therapy and, you know, pulled out memories from children that that weren't real and fed into this kind of mass hysteria about this widespread satanic cult. When the reality was is that many of the, the accusations levied against parents were not true. But at the same time, there was a more national conversation happening about the acknowledgement of childhood sexual abuse and believing women who had not been able to share their memories of abuse or share their abuse at that time and then were remembering it or connecting to the memory of it as adults. So both things are happening at the same time. And this author... I thought, I thought this article was great. That's why I'm talking about it so much. But they, they really centered it in the timeline of feminism and feminist political movements in the U.S. And that in the 60s and up through the 70s, the feminist political movements had really focused on giving female victims a kind of like space to talk. And they centered female abuse victims in, in their movement. But when we hit the 80s, where there was this kind of backlash to these political movements, which I mentioned in the Stranger Things episode part two, if you want to hear more about that. In the 80s, we had this kind of backlash to these movements, which in regards to this issue of like female victims of childhood sexual abuse resulted in this backlash and this kind of like diminishing of their experience to the point where when Stephen King wrote this book in 1992, it became... It was almost like laughable that a woman would say that she had been abused as a child and would get a lot of negative or intense like pushback for it. Zizza posits that this is because this reckoning with sexual abuse that was perpetrated by family members, particularly male family members against female children, threatened the like sacred or, you know, holy space that the nuclear family and particularly a patriarchal nuclear family held in American society that if we were to be honest about the reality that most abuse is perpetrated by someone that the child knows, particularly by a family member, and not by strangers or satanic cults that are, you know, pulling children off of the streets, then we have to acknowledge the fact that the family is not the ultimate structure that's going to restore our nation to its past glory. You've probably heard this rhetoric before from people saying that, like, one, you know, blaming social ills on fathers not sticking around. This is often like a, a racial criticism that's that's thrown around as well, right? That the problem with African-American families is that the fathers don't stick around. If we were to open up that can of worms and say that a, it's potential that a father or, you know, a male family member would abuse children in his family, then the family isn't going to save us. The family, the nuclear family... The heterosexual, patriarchal, nuclear family isn't going to be the solution to all of our problems. So what do we really have left? I think this is a fantastic point, and I'm so glad that I was able to read this article before recording this episode, because I think it does serve to kind of explain why the satanic panic happened and why we're having kind of a, a revival of that sentiment nowadays, I don't know if you've been on the internet <laughs> at all, um, but you have probably seen people lobbying the word "groomer" around, particularly at LGBTQ plus people, saying that if you talk about sexuality or gender identity in front of children, you're immediately grooming them to be abused. This is very reminiscent of the Satanic Panic, where every person, particularly who was involved with a child's life, like at, at daycare was accused of being a groomer if they weren't immediately related to the child. And this ignores the reality that the vast majority of abuse perpetrated against children is done by somebody that they know, whether a family member or a friend, you know, someone connected to their family in some way. It's not just, it's not strangers and their teachers and, you know, every adult running around on the street. It's people that know them and therefore have access to them. And so by displacing the accusations about abuse and grooming into communities like teachers or queer people, we get to avoid the reality that families are very dangerous to children. And that if we want to do something about child abuse, we have to look inward to family dynamics and figure out how to intervene there, not to prevent teachers who use they, them pronouns from having a flag in their classroom that teaches the kids in the class about different gender identities. We're focusing our energy into the wrong place if this is the debate that we're going to be having. And this is not to say that, you know, people who are in positions like as as a teacher don't perpetrate abuse against children. We know that it happens. There are stories of teachers having inappropriate relationships with their students that come out in the news. But statistically, if we're looking at the root cause of child abuse, it is with Someone who knows or was related to the child. So I say all of that to just say that when Gerald's game came out, it was very much centered in this first wave in the 80s of satanic panic and recovered memories. And as we moved into the 90s, then there was a backlash to the backlash where people began to say, well, it's not possible to have recovered memories or it's not possible for you to remember this happening to you. So therefore, it didn't happen to you. And in fact, the very year that Gerald's Game was published was the same year that the trial against Woody Allen happened. And if you're unfamiliar, Woody Allen was accused of sexually abusing his daughter, Dylan. And at the core of this trial that was going on was this report that was submitted to the court by the Yale New Haven Hospital Child Sex Abuse Clinic. Which is a, it's a shady report, I'm just going to say that. It's a shady report and was actually not found to be reliable by the judge in the case or by the prosecutor who initially commissioned the report. This report, with all of its many, many flaws, essentially said that Dylan was an unreliable narrator and that she wouldn't be able to testify on the stand about what had happened to her. I'm not gonna go into too many details because I could do probably like four episodes about this whole situation. Um, but I highly recommend the documentary "Allen versus Pharaoh" as it does a pretty comprehensive coverage of this report and what went on with Dylan's experience uh, with with that like assessment situation. I do bring up that story to just really center what the zeitgeist looked like when Gerald's game came out, and that there was tremendous media scrutiny and media attention paid to this idea of the memories of a child being reliable or not. Now, Dylan's case is a little bit different because she was essentially still the same age that she was when she was abused when they were assessing her memory, But I often think that the debates around recovered memories focus on this idea that children have fickle memories. So therefore, anything we remember about our childhood, you know, shouldn't be taken at its face value. And that was kind of weaponized against Dylan because she used childlike language to describe things that were around her at the time that she was interviewed about the allegations. And if you take that kind of context of the the Woody Allen trial with this article by Zizza, then I think you can really see why this novel would have been so controversial at the time and why I think it may still make people feel uncomfortable. At the core of it, Gerald's Game is about recovering memory related to childhood sex abuse. And childhood sex abuse is already a horrible, horrible topic. And then you add in this kind of controversial topic of recovered memories or repressed memories and it becomes very easy to dismiss that that this could happen. It becomes very easy to dismiss that anyone could have an experience like Jesse where you out of the blue have a a memory of something that happened to you as a child that you've never thought about before. So before I give my take on this uh, issue, I, I just want to give like a kind of a little bit of a summary of the the idea of recovered memory and the debate around it. So, that just the definition of recovered memory is essentially the experience of recalling a past traumatic event that had been unavailable to conscious memory up until that point. It's often also re- referred to as, like, post-traumatic amnesia or disassociative amnesia, which just, I think, puts more of a label on it that it's related to uh, a trauma And it happens in the kind of wake of the trauma. Now, post-traumatic amnesia can also include a like physical injury to the head. So maybe like getting hit in the head and getting a concussion and then experiencing amnesia where it's the trauma of the like physical injury along with the neurological damage contributes to the amnesia. Post-traumatic amnesia can also be like the person has a vague memory of the traumatic event. They can't recall all of the details. Now, I have worked with uh, my mentor for many years, and her work is in uh, memory reconsolidation, which is this idea that after a traumatic event happens, our memory of it can be fractured and nonlinear. And the goal of memory reconsolidation is to help the person put into a linear fashion the memory of what happened to them. This is a little different than recovered memory therapy, which is the more controversial thing that was going on in the 80s and 90s, in that it's not about pulling out a memory that has absolutely no recollection, but it is about helping a person reorganize, aka reconsolidate, uh, their memory of an event that may have been encoded as a nonlinear memory due to the trauma around it. So I think sometimes a lot of stuff like memory reconsolidation or other trauma-focused therapies like TFCBT that do do memory work, they kind of get all wrapped up into the idea of recovered memory, which negates the research that does support evidence-based practices like trauma-focused CBT, where the memory work, the autobiographical work that the person is doing is part of the treatment. So I just want to make that clear for everyone listening that those things are, I think, kind of tangentially related because they all fall under to this idea of, like, memories after trauma. Um, but that doesn't mean that anything having to do with reorganizing or making a sense of post-traumatic memories means that it's recovered memory work. I just want to separate those things out. So, like I said, repressed memory or recovered memory is, like, a, a memory the person had no conscious awareness of, and then it comes to the surface. In the height of the satanic panic in America, there was a movement that developed around this idea of recovered memory therapy, which is where someone would go to a therapist and say, you know, I'm having this issue of like, I'm, I'm depressed. And then the therapist would say, you probably were sexually abused as a child, and then would work to kind of pull up that memory for the person, and then they would have this recovered memory. A lot of the examples of this, or case studies that were written up about this, turned out to be fake. It seems that in the excitement of therapists to help people recover memories, they were actually implanting false memories into the person's memory, and then those memories, those false memories were becoming integrated into the person's memory about themselves and their life. The most famous example of these, like, fake memories was a psychiatrist in Canada named Lawrence Pazder, who wrote a book called Michelle Remembers. And in it, he wrote about this patient that he had been seeing named Michelle, who came in with some depression and he realized that she had something she needed to tell him. And she started behaving oddly as they worked together, acting like a child. And so they uh, recovered these memories of these, like, satanic rituals she believed she had attended as, like, a child. And that she had been ritually abused at these, like, months-long satanic rituals. Now, the rough part is that... He published this book, and then turns out he married this patient. (laughs) Uh, That's a big no-no. You are not supposed to be romantically involved with your patients, and you also probably shouldn't be going into business with them by writing books together. So he really did a... He did more than a dual role. He did a triple role. And it turns out the entire book was fake. She didn't have any of these memories. She didn't have any of these things happen to her. These memories were kind of co-created between... Lawrence and Michelle in these sessions and Lawrence went on to become an expert in quote unquote satanic ritual abuse he was an expert witness for the McMartin preschool trial he was his the book Michelle remembers was used as like a training material for like law enforcement during the the satanic panic and then he just kind of like had a regular life after that. Like not a lot happened to him after the book was debunked and it turned out he was married to his patient. Uh, I think they ended up getting divorced and then he died in 2004. <laughs> he just kind of lived his life. Uh, Ruined a lot of other people's lives though because of his involvement in the satanic panic, but not necessarily what this entire episode is about. But that was the height at which this recovered memory movement had reached was that You know, mental health providers were involved in law enforcement and court cases against people accused of satanic ritual abuse that had never been perpetrated. And many of those very famous cases, like the McMartin uh, preschool trial, have been, you know, vacated and essentially found that there was no evidence at the time of satanic ritual abuse because it's not something that happened. I think the unfortunate thing is that because of this very dangerous situation that is exemplified by the Michelle Remembers book, where providers, mental health providers, were co creating and planting false memories into people's minds, resulted in not only a lot of pain and suffering for people that were accused of the abuse, it also resulted in quite a heavy backswing of the pendulum when it comes to the idea of memory and trauma. Now, I think this also depends on the generation in which you were trained as a mental health provider. Obviously, the generation of like Pazder or Lawrence's generation of training really bought into it. The next generation of mental health providers that came, which would be people that are probably like 20, 15 to 20 years in the field right now, they were like, no, 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 we don't touch memory stuff. We don't do anything about this. Like, we do not do anything with recovering memories. Memory is fickle. It's not to be trusted. (laughs) I think they really swung to the other side of, like, we are never going to touch memory recovery or any, like, dubious accounts of things that have happened to people. We're really going to shut it down. I would say that probably people that have been, that are like me, that are just coming in, are kind of caught between these poles of there being, you know, some research and some theory that seems to involve trauma and memory and the way in which the body can hold the memory. And then there's also the fear of participating in a moral panic like the satanic panic and not wanting psychology or mental health treatment to be weaponized against vulnerable people, particularly in this era of what I would say is the redux of the satanic panic with QAnon and the groomer rhetoric that's been going on. The consequence of being pulled between these kind of sides of, you know, wanting to explore more about how memory and the body and trauma all work together and also not wanting to essentially repeat the sins of our fathers is that talking about like recovered memories or repressed memories becomes very taboo and it can be hard to find a place for those conversations in the field at large. And particularly when it comes to providing like good evidence-based a treatment for patients. Now, I'm not here to say that I, I think you should dive in and try memory recovery work because I think that there are definitely some strains of it that are more like the Pazder strain that where it's very dangerous. But I don't think that it means we have to stray away from this idea that trauma can inter- interact with memory. We We know that it does. We've seen in many studies in many like theories about trauma that memory and trauma are not good friends (laughs) and they don't get along well and it can be there are many different mechanisms through which this happens many of them based on mechanisms that our brains use to make sure that we get through the day and aren't constantly bombarded with memories of the dangers that we've lived through. Personally, another reason why I have some difficulty with the people who are very, very anti-memory or recovered memories is that Elizabeth Loftus is one of the, like, premier researchers that researches covered memory. And uh, Dr. Loftus has made quite a reputation for herself testifying in controversial trials. If you are familiar with her name, you may know why. She's testified, She testified for Robert Durst, in, in defense of Robert Durst, the man who was convicted of murder of his neighbor and, and wife. She testified on the behalf of uh, Ghislaine Maxwell in the Epstein trial, and she testified on behalf of Harvey Weinstein in his trial for sexual assault. She's also been involved in like the cases of Ted Bundy, the Oklahoma City Bombers, Michael Jackson and her testimony is often meant to balance, well, she says balance, balance the accuser of essentially a powerful person who has allegedly perpetrated abuse. She very often testifies to this idea that memory is very fickle, it's unreliable, and so if a abuser is saying they remember something, there's a potential that they don't remember it the way that they are telling the person. Now, From an academic perspective, I understand that Loftus, what Loftus's work is, and the reason why she is often called to testify for many defense teams. She has a very extensive research background in memory, and she was a vital part of getting the allegations of the McMartin preschool trial dropped in the 90s. Her work really illustrates that it is possible to implant false memories and have the person who had the memory implanted in their mind really incorporate that memory and think that it happened to them. And it's important research, right? It it shows us that we do need to be somewhat skeptical of our memory. And just because something is in our memory does not mean that it is 100% true. I think the kind of yucky part, in my personal opinion, is that the trials with which she has mostly been involved with have been trials of people who are guilty. Like I don't know, just like I don't know what does it say. Like I think in all those examples of yeah Weinstein, Maxwell, and Durst, all three of those people were found guilty, and there's like. Quite a bit of evidence that they did the crime that they were convicted of. Loftus has, in my opinion, the same energy of the ACLU defending Nazis, right? Of like, I'll defend your right to free speech till the day I die, even though you say things I don't like. You know, Loftus is like, everyone needs to know that memory can be false, regardless of if those memories could be responsible for putting away horrible person. (laughs) I think you can tell what my (laughs) opinions are on Elizabeth Loftus's work. All that to say, I think that that is where I kind of end up in this middle place of knowing that there is a lot of research that memory can be quite difficult to get a hold on, right? Our, our memories are very easily influenced. And often when we take a memory out to examine it and re encode it for later, we can change and alter the memory in a way that appears to be natural. We just now hold that change in our memory as the way it always was. Additionally, I do think that it's possible for a person to have gone through a traumatic event and have worked so hard to avoid the memory of it that it's not part of their conscious day-to-day thinking. And to tie it back to Gerald's game, I think that my conceptualization of Jessie would be that part of her did remember the trauma. Part of her did remember the sexual abuse that happened so long ago. The reason why she wasn't able to talk about it or even acknowledge it to herself is that she had been working very, very hard to avoid all thoughts of the memory, as well as the triggers or environmental factors that would have reminded her of the memory. It's not so much that the memory was not there. It was that she wasn't calling it back up. We have a way of storing memories in our brain because otherwise we would just be constantly inundated with every memory we've ever had if we didn't have a way to kind of tuck it to the background of our awareness for a while. We also have the incredible ability to pull those memories back out of like storage and bring them to the forefront of our awareness. Jessie just was not doing that with the memory of being abused. She put it into storage and never took it out. And I don't think that that means that her memory was a recovered memory that was implanted. I think that it means that it is possible for us to go through things that are so horrible or so confusing and we don't know what to do with them. And Jesse's abuse, which I haven't really described because it is quite gross, but it was something that she was very confused about what was happening at the time. Essentially, her father had her sit on his lap while he masturbated. And she didn't really know what was happening. She was 10 years old at the time. She didn't know what was happening. And so I think that oftentimes with that confusion, particularly with children and, and who experience childhood sexual abuse, it's the confusion that makes the memory hard to figure out. You may have heard this if you've watched any of the like Michael Jackson or R. Kelly documentaries about the victims that say, like, I didn't really know what was happening to me was wrong. I thought that this person was just interested in me. And it's the fact that it's a event happening to a child outside of their control and outside of their context, right? This is not the context in which how adults should be treating children. And so it doesn't quite line up. And so it is a trauma that has happened to them, but it's also confusing. It doesn't quite make sense. And so what do you do with a memory that you can't quite make sense of? Well, I think some people tuck it away and don't touch it until they are either at a place where they can make sense of it or with the intention of never coming back to it. And in those cases, a therapist doesn't have to pull and elicit a memory, right? The The therapist doesn't have to say anything to lead the person to that memory. That memory is there somewhere and the, the person will get to it. The person may get to it before they even go to therapy. They may have that memory resurfaced. It's not a memory that's coming out of the blue, out of nowhere. It's a memory that is probably held somewhere else in the brain and the brain is very actively working to keep it away from awareness because it would derail someone's life to have that memory constantly coming up. That is what I have to say about trauma responses and recovered memories in Gerald's game. I really think this is a great example of these kind of tricky topics. And Jesse's story is very interesting to look at from like a trauma and memory perspective, particularly because of like intense situation she is in when she finally does remember uh, her, her childhood sexual abuse. And remembering that Stephen King wrote it in the context of the Satanic Panic, I think also is very interesting to look at because it is, I think, an empathic or even compassionate look at a woman going through this, and his end of his story is not that she is faking it. The end of the story is that she's able to heal by being able to Acknowledge this memory that she went through. So, yeah, I think in my opinion, recovered memories as they were in the 80s and 90s maybe don't exist like that, but I think there is something to say about memory and trauma and the very intense work that our brains do to avoid being constantly flooded with traumatic memories. We just got to get through the day. We can't be thinking about all the bad stuff that's happened to us all the time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I appreciate you. Listening all the way through, we'd love another Mike Flanagan piece of work. And next week, we'll continue more of the spooky content. I'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye.